Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. I want to thank uh, Nate and Catherine for subbing for me the past two weeks. And I also want to dedicate today's show to the memories of our own Ellen LaLuzerne and um, journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, who was uh, killed by Israeli soldiers a year ago yesterday. We are going to be talking today about two reports by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Later in the hour, we'll be talking about a uh, recently released report about how private equity gets rich in uh, hospice care and what that means for um, those people who need hospice care and and for the rest of us, um, the taxpayers. But we're starting with a report about the effect of sanctions on the countries that are under sanctions and and the world and maybe even the United States. And uh, with us to discuss this is Francisco Rodriguez. He's the right family professor of the practice of international and public affairs at the University of Denver's Corbell School of International Studies. He is a Venezuelan economist, currently director and founder of Oil for Venezuela, a non-profit organization focused on finding solutions to that country's humanitarian crisis. He's a frequent contributor to several publications like Foreign Affairs, Financial Times, The New York Times, America's Quarterly, Foreign Policy, and the Washington Post, among others. He has published more than 50 research papers in academic outlets, including the American Economic Journal, Journal of Economic Growth, Journal of Macroeconomics, Journal of Politics and Economic Development and Cultural Change, and his book, Scorched Earth, The Political Economy of Venezuela's Collapse 2012 to 2020, will be published in 2020. And I I should say right away, Francisco, um, that when this book is out, I would like to have you again to talk about that. Sure, I'd be delighted to. Uh, Thanks very much, Esti. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, And thanks for that invitation. Well, so let's start with um, just a general... um, assessment of what are the effects of economic sanctions on living standards in the targeted countries? 
Um, okay, so the aim of the report that I uh, published last week with the Center for Economic and Policy Research uh, was to assess the evidence that exists on the effect of economic sanctions on living conditions in target countries. So we looked at uh, effects on uh, GDP per capita, we looked at effects on poverty, on unemployment, on health, on uh, life expectancy, on quality of life, on human rights, uh, and across the board, very consistently across all of the studies that we surveyed, there were very negative, significant effects on living conditions in target countries. Uh, 30 out of 32 studies that we looked at uh, found consistently negative large uh, effects. Um, to name some examples, uh, the effect of multilateral sanctions on uh, income per capita uh, is a cumulative decline of 26%. A 26% decline in GDP per capita uh, is more than three times larger than uh, the Great Recession, uh, that the 2008 recession, and it's approximately the magnitude of the Great Depression. Uh, of the 1930s in the United States. Um, the effect of uh, imposing sanctions on life ex expectancy, for example, in um, the target countries uh, is an increase of between 1.2 to 1.4 uh, years, a decrease actually, uh, of between 1.2 and 1.4 years. Uh, so there's a deterioration. Lives are shortened because uh, there are higher mortality rates as a result of sanctions. Um, that effect, that estimated effect is similar to the global effect uh, on life expectancy of the COVID pandemic. Uh, so across the board, we find very substantial effects uh, that are negative, consistent on the countries that they're imposed on. Uh, and this very much uh, questions uh, the, um, the, the, um, the thesis, which is often presented by policymakers in countries like the US who impose these sanctions, that sanctions are aimed uh, only at targeted regimes and that they have humanitarian exceptions and that they don't target the poor. Uh, what we find is, is consistent evidence that their effects uh, are actually much stronger on the poor and vulnerable so that poverty rates go up, uh, inequality goes up uh, whenever economic sanctions are imposed on a country. Yeah, so that is so um, interesting and disturbing because um, often in these countries, um, the people are already oppressed by the government, right? You think about Iran, you think about Afghanistan. Um, these are governments that are not supportive of their citizenship. And yet, um, these sanctions, which are supposedly against the government, against the policies of the government, against um, what they're doing, don't don't seem to affect the government very much, but they do affect the people who are already in um, very difficult situations. Is that more or less accurate? Yes, no, that, that is completely accurate. And there's like, there's a perverse logic uh, with these sanctions, which is that they're supposed to uh, affect, or at least the countries that are imposing them say that they're aimed at the leaders uh, and say that uh, they're aimed at, at, at their cronies and the elites. And actually, when you look at the evidence, whenever sanctions are imposed in a country, they have relatively little effect on the elites because the elites always have a way to um, to be able to ensure their well-being, their access to resources. Uh, w typically, what happens is that what, what what sanctions do is that they cut off the access of uh, governments and countries to foreign exchange. Uh, so, uh, if a country, if a developing country has less dollars, 
uh, because it's not able to sell its uh, exports internationally, like oil in the case of Venezuela and Iran, uh, then that's going to mean that there are going to be uh, less dollars for the country to uh, import all types of goods, including essential goods like food and medicines. And the majority of developing countries import a large fraction of their consumption of food and medicines, as well as uh, inputs and machinery for their agricultural industry. Uh, and what we see uh, the governments doing in those authoritarian states when sanctions are imposed is that they shift the burden towards the most vulnerable groups. So, for example, in Iran, there have been very careful studies looking at how different groups fared uh, in the population during the period of sanctions. And the ones that saw the, the uh, largest deterioration in their living standards were the rural population, were the urban poor, were the unemployed, uh, the ones that uh, actually uh, were much more protected were uh, public officials and high-ranking public officials. So uh, it, it, the pattern is, is very clear. Even in terms of human rights, democracy, so often sanctions are imposed uh, with the idea that they are uh, a way in which um, regimes that violate human rights are, are punished. Well, the evidence is actually the contrary, that once sanctions are imposed, those regimes actually become much more repressive. So, so the, the weight uh, of sanctions falls uh, on the groups that are most vulnerable, uh, on the political opposition, on those whose rights are being repressed in these countries. Mm -hmm. So what what are sanctions supposed to uh, achieve, or at least what are we told they're supposed to achieve? And are there some hidden um, goals um, that um, that we don't hear about? And, and either way, does it work? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, let me start with that. Uh, they, they don't work very often. Uh, now, identifying the effectiveness of sanctions is, is very challenging from an empirical point of view, because if something changes in a country that is the target of sanctions, we never know for sure whether it was the sanctions or whether it was something else that happened uh, in that country. Uh, the, but what we do know is that uh, only about a third of sanctions uh, end in success. Uh, so in other words, two thirds of sanctions end uh, uh, and, and in failure in, in the strict sense that the goals that they intended, the change that they tried to bring about uh, were, they, they did not result. Um, the, and, and, and furthermore, uh, what we see is that sanctions are actually uh, least effective when they are targeted at authoritarian regimes. Uh, they, because in authoritarian regimes, they can't, their leaders can't get voted out of office. If, if there are elections, then, 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 you, then, then maybe the people will react and they, they have a way in which they can uh, uh, change their leaders. But, but in authoritarian regimes, that doesn't happen. Uh, so, so generally, the effectiveness of sanctions is low. And there are some studies that uh, even suggest that it's much lower than that 34%. That once, once you take it into account, uh, the other potential factors, uh, because, I mean, to put a simple example, sanctions were imposed on Iraq uh, after it invaded Kuwait, uh, and the, the objective of the sanctions was achieved, which is that they pulled out of Kuwait, but they didn't pull out of Kuwait because of the sanctions. They pulled out of Kuwait because of the first Gulf War. So uh, there are studies that suggest that once you take into account those 
other factors that could have led to the change, uh, then uh, the effect of the sanctions actually drops below 10%. So it's not a very effective um, uh, mechanism uh, of foreign policy. Uh, in many cases, it ends up uh, backfiring. Um, the and we've seen that uh, in, uh, in 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 a number of cases where the authoritarian regimes actually become even stronger. They're consolidated. Uh, there's what's known as a rally around the flag effect. So when 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 sanctions are imposed, uh, the that allows them to shore up political support. It also gives them a pretext to persecute their political opponents because they're taking the side uh, of a foreign aggressor. Uh, so um, so this leads to a very interesting question, which you're posing, which is well, then why is it that governments use sanctions so often uh, if they're not effective? And is it possible that uh, other goals are being pursued? Um, and, I, and, and, and I think it's actually clear that there must be other considerations that are playing uh, in, in here. When, when we look at the imbalance and the inconsistency between how some authoritarian regimes are treated by sanctioning countries like the U.S. Uh, so we see that sanctions are leveled. Uh, against uh, uh, countries like Venezuela, countries like Iran, uh, and the pretext is that these are uh, not democracies, that there are authoritarian regimes that violate human rights. But on the other hand, uh, we have countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, uh, which are also uh, authoritarian regimes, which uh, have incurred um, much grosser human rights violations than, than those of many sanctioned countries. Uh, and not only are they not uh, sanctioned, but they are courted by U.S. leaders. Uh, so uh, there, there, there's obviously a set of other factors at play, uh, the, uh, which have to do with geopolitics, which have to do with, uh, with, with, with the alliances, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, all of these uh, factors, I think, play, play a role uh, in the determination of sanctions. Um, but it, that's the reason why many uh, experts have argued that uh, the only sanctions that should be in place, the only economic sanctions, should be those uh, approved uh, by and according to the Charter of the United Nations. And the Charter of the United Nations says that the only body that uh, can impose sanctions is the UN Security Council. Uh, and the reason for that is that that requires that there be a very high level of international consensus uh, that a state is a threat to uh, the peace, uh, to international peace, uh, or, or has committed acts of aggression. Uh, and in that case, an example of those are sanctions on North Korea. Sanctions on North Korea are and continue to be supported uh, by all permanent members of the UN Security Council, including China and Russia. Uh, so that's, that's, that's very different. Um, the, I, I do still think that it, that it makes sense to be concerned about uh, the humanitarian impacts of those UN multilateral sanctions, uh, but it at least requires a level of consensus that ensures that sanctions are not used arbitrarily, for example, to try to generate regime change in governments uh, that uh, were, were the governing parties of a different ideology uh, than the one that the sanctioning country considers convenient. Mm -hmm. But even when you look at North Korea, um, obviously the ruler and, and his father before that um, live in um, wealth and also has plenty of money, it seems to um, build uh, intercontinental or, or shorter range um, missiles, but while at the same time we know that there's episodes of starvation in the country fairly regularly, 
Um, so that doesn't seem to work either. Yeah, no, 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 I, I, I agree. I, I agree. And North Korea sanctions are not an example of effective sanctions. During the sanctions regime, uh, the, um, the North Korean government uh, acquired nuclear weapons. So if, if the idea is that the sanctions would somehow uh, inhibit their possibility to de develop nuclear weapons, they've clearly been proven wrong. Uh, so, yes, no, I, I mean, my, my point is basically that uh, when you require a high level of consensus, such as the UN Security Council uh, having and all permanent members having to sign off on sanctions, then at least you have somewhat of a guarantee that these sanctions won't be used arbitrarily uh, to uh, against uh, the countries that are not convenient from the standpoint of U.S. foreign policy, because we do see uh, a lot of that arbitrariness. But I, I do think that you raise a very relevant point, which is that even at the level of UN sanctions, even if they are approved by, by the United Nations, you you do have these negative humanitarian effects. Uh, and, uh, and this really should lead us to questioning uh, whether there is a role for economic sanctions, um, uh, for any type of economic sanctions. So it's one thing to sanction the leaders. So there are personal individual sanctions uh, that are aimed uh, specifically at leaders. So freezing the bank accounts, impeding the international travel uh, of leaders and of people associated with them, uh, and of stopping them from using the international financial system to carry out money laundering. Uh, that is something that I believe has a place, and I believe uh, it's going to continue to be used. And furthermore, that type of sanctions are also important in the fight uh, against international terrorism, because you have to have ways to monitor and stop international terrorists from uh, using the international financial uh, system to finance terrorist attacks. So I think that that individual specific sanctions uh, have definitely do have a place uh, in in the policy uh, of, of many countries. But sanctions uh, and even UN sanctions that are leveled against a country's economy, uh, they um, what they, they are um, very similar in, in, in their their approach to uh, a lot of actions that, that, according to international law today, are considered war crimes. So, in other words, uh, we do not consider it a legitimate course of action uh, to lay siege to a city. Uh, this is uh, this is what armies did up until the 19th century. Uh, they would say, well, you know, we don't want to you know, scale the walls of this city. Uh, we are going to starve the city in, into submission. Today, we recognize that that is uh, inhumane, that it's a war crime, uh, and that it, um, it, it, it implies the targeting of non-combatants, the targeting of civilians. Uh, so then the question is, why would it be justified to target an economy? Why would it be justified to say, we are going to cause an economic crisis in Venezuela by stopping the country from being able to sell its oil, which generates 95% of its foreign currency revenue, um, because we want to drive uh, the Maduro regime from power? Uh, if it's, it, it may be a, a legitimate objective to try to drive the Maduro regime from power, uh, but that objective should not justify the targeting of civilians. Uh, and that is effectively what sanctions uh, are doing. They, they are they're imposing costs on the whole economy. They're imposing costs on, uh, on civilians. And when you, when you tally the effects on uh, mortality, life expectancy, uh, health, um, the uh, stunting and wasting of children, um, you have to reach the conclusion that uh, economic sanctions 
uh, currently are among the deadliest, if not the deadliest weapon used by Western powers. Uh, so this definitely requires uh, a debate about how is it that uh, the United States is taking these actions that have these terrible consequences uh, that are uh, not only worsening, but taking the lives of thousands, if not millions of people around the world. Yeah, so um, I think one of the explanations or excuses uh, for sanctions is that it's better than war. Um, and it's true that if you um, level, level sanctions on a country, you don't have to send your troops over there and so on and so forth. But um, from what I understand, and I think you just said it, uh, there's at least as many victims of sanctions as there are of war and possibly even more. Yes, in fact, uh, it was Woodrow Wilson, actually, who first said uh, that economic sanctions are more tremendous than war. And he was totally right. Uh, the, uh, the fact is that cutting off an economy in today's globalized world, cutting off an economy from commercial and trade and financial interactions with the rest of the world is essentially besieging that economy. And it has dramatic effects on the lives of people living in that economy. Uh, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's quite interesting what you point to because usually sanctions were seen as part of war, uh, up until World War One. Uh, the, you would, and in fact, World War One was won in that way, was won, won essentially by imposing a blockade, uh, a naval blockade on Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, so it was only, uh, after World War One uh, that some countries started uh, thinking, well, we should separate sanctions from war because they are an alternative. And that's when Woodrow Wilson said, well, since sanctions are more tremendous than war, maybe the threat of sanctions will be so intimidating that it will uh, ensure world peace. Uh, he turned out not to be right in that. Uh, but, but his logic is that they were... In, in the mind of the people who framed them, uh, who framed the type of sanctions uh, that we have right now, they were what you would come up with if you didn't have a nuclear weapon and were trying to come up with a nuclear weapon, which is how do you create a deterrent that is so big that no country will dare to cross the line? Now, it, they, they turned out to be wrong in that even when they developed it, uh, a lot of countries crossed those lines that were imposed by the international community or certain actors. Uh, and, and therefore, what you end up having is war by other means. Yeah. And um, your report does um, note some examples of where uh, sanctions were used with the intention to affect the person on the street, so to speak, so that they rise up against the government. Has that happened? No, no, that uh, I, I, it's 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 very rare for that to happen. Uh, the although yes, I, it's the the intent uh, definitely uh, of uh, sanctions on many countries uh, has been that, and the uh, the Trump administration was, if anything, more explicit in stating stating that. Uh, but the Biden administration, so 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 you can find uh, Trump officials going on record saying. Uh, what we uh, what we want to do and what we're aiming to do is to uh, create an economic crisis so that things will get really terrible so that people will overthrow the regime. Uh, the Biden administration officials do not say that openly. They're more careful, but they have not systematically altered sanctions policy. They've maintained basically the same sanctions policy as the Trump administration. In fact, according to uh, to, to our estimate, 
uh, the number of sanctions imposed by the U.S. has actually grown. It grew by 79% during Trump and it grew by a further 18% during the Biden administration. So if anything, now we're seeing sanctions used uh, more than ever in world history. Uh, we have uh, the number of countries that are sanctioned by either the U.S., the EU, or the U.N. Uh, has risen to 27% uh, of all countries uh, and to 29% of the world economy. So almost a third of the world economy today is subject to sanctions. Mm -hmm. And that affects the global economy, yeah? Yes, yes, definitely. It affects the global economy and it also generates uh, an incentive, which we're seeing play out in real time, for sanctioned countries to band together with each other. Uh, so we've seen increasing cooperation between uh, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, China. And once you start putting these countries together, uh, they can pose a very significant challenge to the economies of the West. Well, and that's something that I've been um, reading about is that the plethora of sanctions that um, have been put by the United States um, is actually making the dollar weaker because uh, governments that are under sanctions and those who support them are looking for um, other currency to work with so that they don't depend on the dollar and um, the effect of the sanctions can be lessened. Is that is that something that you have looked at? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. And, and, and you do have uh, and uh, increasing actions taken by developing countries to try to develop alternate payment systems. Um, the And this has to do with the dollar, uh, and it also has to do with other features of the international trading system, such as, for example, the SWIFT system for international transactions, which is the messaging system that banks use when they're going to process international wires. Um, we, you might recall that um, earlier last year, uh, Russian banks, uh, several uh, Russian banks uh, were taken off of the SWIFT system. So basically they were impeded from processing uh, international transactions and Russia is working together with China in developing an alternate messaging system that can be used to process the same transactions. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of efforts uh, into uh, developing alternate payment systems that will rely less on the dollar. Uh, it is, I, I would say um, it's it's difficult. I, I don't think it's difficult to develop these alternate payment systems because uh, the um, the decision to use the dollar isn't just a decision of governments. It's also a decision uh, of uh, people and it's a decision of individual firms. Uh, so uh, when a uh, Venezuelan firm wants to buy something from a Colombian firm, the Colombian firm will, with very high likelihood, ask for the money to be wired in dollars uh, through a U.S. bank account. So that's how international trade happens. And it's difficult to, and, and of course, the Colombian firm is doing that because it wants to have those dollars uh, so as to use them to buy other things that are uh, sold by other people who also demand dollars. Uh, so you have this system, which is what we economists uh, call a multiple equilibrium in which uh, the reason that people uh, have to use the dollar is that everybody else using it. Uh, and given that everybody else is using it, it's very hard to kick the habit of using dollars. Uh, however, uh, what uh, evidence teaches us is that uh, those type of multiple equilibria can be vulnerable. Uh, and 
if you get a critical mass uh, of countries and of actors that do want to change their use of the currency, uh, then it can actually be quite fragile. And then uh, a lot of uh, people who don't even care that much about it may end up leaving the dollar if it generates a confidence crisis. Mm-hmm. So I, I have two uh, more questions for you. And since we are running against the clock, I'll ask them at the same time. Um, one is, so in the case of Afghanistan, for example, um, $7 billion in assets belonging to the Afghan Central Bank uh, were confiscated. And we talked earlier about sanctions against particular people, and so we know about um, multi-million or even billion-dollar yachts that have been confiscated. Who benefits from this? Who, who, where is the money? Who um, gets the money? In, it, does it in any way... Uh, benefit the people of uh, yeah. these countries? Well, that, that's a very interesting point. I would point uh, uh, to an example, which that is that uh, of the funds that were held by the Libya Investment Authority in 2011, uh, which were uh, frozen uh, and uh, as a result of the sanctions of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi has been dead for 12 years and the money still hasn't been returned to Libya. Uh, the so and no, I, I think that this is an issue that uh, merits a deeper investigation because those resources are invested in financial institutions uh, and those financial institutions retain control of the resources uh, while the access of their members uh, are blocked. So what is going on with those resources? Uh, I mean, they're they're nominally in the books of these financial institutions. These financial institutions claim to have them. Uh, but as we know from past financial crises, uh, those claims uh, are not always uh, genuine. They're not always true. Uh, so, so I think that that's something that uh, that, that that merits closer examination. Uh, in uh, in the case of Afghanistan, uh, the uh, uh, those uh, resources belong to the central bank, uh, and it's very important to uh, uh, to to take into account that uh, the, any any country in the world needs a central bank in order to maintain an orderly payment system. Uh, And central banks uh, issue local currency that is used in the country and back that currency with international reserves. If their international reserves are frozen, then that means that the currency that people are using in the country has no backing. That generates a run on the currency. That generates uh, a spike in inflation. Generates a, a deterioration of purchasing power, uh, and and it also generates an inability of that country to carry out international transactions. So the freezing of access to international reserves, uh, the impediment for these countries to access. Um, uh, their deposits at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, so two years ago, the International Monetary Fund uh, issued uh, $650 billion in special drawing rights uh, to attend the pandemic. Uh, and countries like Iran, Venezuela were barred from accessing those resources mm. because the U.S. was blocking their access because it didn't recognize, well, in the case of Venezuela, it didn't recognize its government in the case of Iran uh, because of other issues. Uh, so so it's, it's not surprising then that we see uh, um, Venezuelan migrants turn up at the U.S. border 
uh, after the economy of their country was unable to deal with the COVID pandemic because the U.S. blocked access to the resources that belonged to the country, uh, uh, that the country was entitled to have access to, and that it was unable to use to uh, to deal with, this, with the crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thank you so much, Francisco Rodriguez, the Rice Family Professor of the Practice of International and Public Affairs at the University of Denver's Coral School of International Studies. Tell us the title of the uh, report so people can look at it. The Human Consequences of Economic Sanctions. It's on the CEPR website, uh, cepr.net. And I hope that our listeners um, start looking. Well, probably some of them have already, but um, those who haven't, looking at sanctions as another uh, mean wo- means of war, really. Thank you, Francisco, and we'll talk to you again when your uh, book is published. Thank you very much, Esti. It's a pleasure being here. Bye-bye. And um, we are going to go straight to our next guest, Eileen Applebaum, is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, where both of our uh, reports today were published. Prior to joining CEPR, she was a distinguished professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University. She has held positions as the research director at the Economic Policy Institute and a professor of economics at Temple. University, as well as visiting positions at universities and research institutes in Berlin, Melbourne, Auckland, and Manchester for the past 10 years. She has studied private equities acquisition of healthcare assets and more generally the financialization of hospitals and healthcare. Um, she has authored, co-authored two books and uh, we are going to talk with her about the newly released report, Praying on a Dying Private Equity Gets Rich in Hospice Care. And hello, Eileen. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and for being patient with us. Um, tell us about the report. Um, it provides evidence that in the last two decades, a growing number of private equity firms have exploited gaping holes in oversight and regulation of the hospice care industry. What did you find, generally speaking? Well, first, let me thank you for uh, inviting me to this program and happy to be here and speaking to your listeners. Um, so we... We decided to take a look at private equity in healthcare, and we've already done a number of reports. And we were struck by the fact that uh, private equity was getting into uh, things like hospice, uh, where you wonder how anybody can make any money. Uh, your, your general impression of hospice is that it's uh, uh, staffed by nurses and by volunteers who care about the patient and the family and want only the best outcome. Want, one, uh, an elderly person who was facing death to be to live their last days in comfort and with dignity, uh, and that is how it was <laughs> until uh, changes began a little earlier than this. But the last decade has really seen massive changes. And the thing we know about private equity is that it is always looking for loopholes that it can exploit, uh, and. It discovered the loopholes right here in how the hospice, how hospice care is paid for, uh, and that really proved to be a great attraction 
uh, for private uh, equity. Uh, those loopholes can be exploited by any for-profit company. And we know that it's mainly for-profits. Of course, the nonprofits could exploit it as well. But nonprofit hospices, by and large, uh, still remain dedicated to the mission of caring for the patient and the patient's family. And I think caring for the patient's family is a really important point. Uh, how many of us have had experience caring for somebody who was dying at home, would have any idea what to expect, how to respond, and how to relieve that dying person's pain, uh, their anxiety, and so on. So uh, that's another really important part of hospice, as more and more people prefer to be home and not in a hospital or another institution. So uh, the for the for profits, what we see is that they have a profit margin of 19%. Well, what is it they are not providing to, to the patients that they can have a profit margin in hospice of 19%? And for comparison, uh, the profit margin uh, in, uh, in, the for in the nonprofits, rather, is just 6%. And, of course, that covers a lot of other uh, costs that they have, but uh, also, also their profit. So... Uh, clearly, there is a big difference in the services that the for-profits are providing. And this, was, this is true of little for-profits as well. Uh, in Los Angeles, you had a lot, a lot of fly-by-night uh, for-profit agencies set up that were tiny, uh, made a bundle, then ran with the money, cheated the government in all kinds of ways. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that uh, Private equity is the only kind of for-profit that can do this. But private equity takes it to scale. The little mom and pops in Los Angeles, maybe they had a chain of two or three agencies. If you look at what used to be called Kindred Care and is now called Gentiva, Gentiva's hospice system is over 500 locations. That, that's huge. So any bad practices are going to... <laughs> they're going to permeate a large part of the of the hospice system. So mm -hmm. let me back up for a minute and tell you what the loopholes are. Yes, please. It's, yeah, it's really it's really astounding. You wonder how how the law was written this way. So since 1983, Medicare pays for hospice care for anybody who's on Medicare. Uh, they pay 90% of all hospice days. So that's where the money comes from. It comes from those uh, deductions they take out of everybody's paycheck to finance uh, Medicare. Uh, and the, the agency that does all of this, the agency that oversees Medicare and Medicaid, is called CMS, uh, Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services. So CMS sets the rules for how they get paid. And this is the most astounding thing. So a hospice gets paid for every day that a patient is enrolled, whether they receive services on that day or not. Hmm. <laughs> right so right there, get, yeah, there's right? a big space <laughs> for abuse. <laughs> right. And then the other thing is that uh, there's not much oversight and so even if a patient receives services, 
the person providing them may or may not have the appropriate skills and the appropriate certification or licenses to provide those services. So the quality of services when they're provided is very uh, uneven. So, so that's, the, that's the big attraction is this loophole. And then the reason that they can exploit it and enroll, so, so what they do is they enroll patients who are not close to, you have to be within six months of death. A doctor has to say you are within six months of death. Uh, and, of course, these hospice agencies have to have a medical director who is a doctor. So they have a doctor who can certify you. Uh, and uh, the the really bad behavior, and we saw this even in a, a large private equity-owned hospice chain named Curo, was, all, was already doing this type of thing. Hire recruiters, send them into uh, assisted living homes, uh, especially in poor neighborhoods, they they exploited the poor the most uh, because they come in and you don't know what's going on. You don't have much in the way of health care. Uh, and they come in and they say, sign up with us and you will get the hospital bed that you need. A nurse will visit you. It's going to be great. And what people don't realize is that when you go into hospice, you give up your Medicare insurance you no longer have health insurance. The point about hospice is there are, you're, you're, you're going to die soon. Nobody is trying to cure you anymore. Uh, and what you get is uh, you, you certainly get medications and dialysis, and things like that, that keep you comfortable, but you don't get any curative care. And so here you are, you've signed up for this, you, you, you may or may not get that hospital bed, and you're certainly not going to get visits by nurses if you get any visits at all. Uh, and then you have an emergency, and you go to the emergency room, and they say, well, you don't have insurance. And that may be the first time you realize that you gave up your Medicare insurance in order to be in hospice. Uh, so it's been terrible. There, there are really terrible things have been reported in terms of people losing chemotherapy, mammograms, uh, like I say, emergency room care, uh, even your place on a liver transplant list. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 those results can be extreme. Uh, so, so the way that, that uh, the, the uh, private equity-owned hospices make their money is, first of all, they enroll if they're, they don't even have to commit fraud. Let's say they don't even go out and look for patients who are not eligible to enroll, which is what the, many of them do do, and that is really fraud, and that's how we find out about the bad behavior when the government goes after them for cheating. But let's pretend that we're just dealing with the honest ones. You, I even wonder why any hospice uh, engages in fraud. You can make so much money without fraud because the rules are so ridiculous. Uh, and so uh, you enroll patients, and if you are a for-profit hospice, you are looking for patients who will live the six months and maybe even longer because you can't actually predict when somebody will die. Uh, so you want patients who have a expected longer lifespan, and you want patients who won't cost much to take care of. And so you prefer dementia patients. Load your hospice up with dementia patients, 
Most of them will live that six months and maybe some will live even longer. And the care that they require is just a personal care assistant. But Mm -hmm. you as the hospice agency get the exact same money per day, which is over $200 a day for every day the patient is enrolled compared to a nonprofit, which probably has a lot of cancer patients, heart patients that require a lot of care, require a nurse's care, and are likely to die soon after they get there. Uh, Half of the patients in hospice die within the first three weeks. So those are the ones who come in who are acutely uh, close to death, who need intensive care to control their pain, their anxiety, and make them comfortable in those last days. Uh, This is expensive care, and because you only have them for a week or two or three, you can't make money out of the fact that they are there, uh, you know, for a longer period of time. So, so that's really the difference. They, they uh, cherry pick the patients. It's not that they have all dementia patients. It's that when you look at their mix of patients, lots of dementia patients, few cancer patients and heart patients. And when you look at the nonprofits, it's the other way around. That's mm-hmm. just taking care of those patients. Yeah. So, uh, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing and it's enraging. And mm-hmm. um, you think, um, first of all, about um, the care that people do not get and then about the fact that they go and recruit people um, specifically from um, low-income areas where um, family members um, are struggling to just survive and so they do not have time to go and scream about things like that and sometimes they don't even know that they um, can and so it's it's really um, I, I mean it's 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 really outrageous but it also is outrageous for the rest of us who are the taxpayers who who pay for all of that yes that that is just so true. And, I, you know, I don't know how we can rein in private equity. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I'm supporting Elizabeth Warren and her Stop Wall Street Looting Act, but the chances of passing that anytime soon are remote. And so I just remind your listeners that, in fact, we had something, a similar kind of a thing, where we had private equity-owned, uh, they, they bought up doctor's practices of doctors in hospitals, mainly emergency room doctors and radiologists. And so you are now in an emergency situation. You go to the emergency room at your hospital that you know takes your insurance. And after you're treated, you get this excessive, outrageous bill from some doctor in the emergency room. How could that happen? And it happens because the private equity-owned doctor's practices were not in any insurance network. They are out of network and they can charge you anything they want. Uh, And that was so outrageous. And we were able to mobilize the outrage against this, that in, you know what our Congress is like, but in this divided Congress, we had bilateral, uh, bipartisan, I meant Republican and Democrat sponsored the bill in both chambers, the House and the Senate. Uh, And it got passed in December, of uh, 2020 went into effect January 1st, 2021, and no person 
uh, or almost no people can receive a, uh, a, a, a surprise medical bill after they go to an emergency room. So we've gotten rid of that. And as a result of getting rid of that, that was, you know, these private equity companies, when they buy a company, they load so much debt onto these companies, a huge amount of debt. The private equity firm owns the company, but the debt has to be paid by the company they just acquired. It's like you bought your neighbor's house, you got a big mortgage, you put a little down payment, you got a big mortgage, you own your neighbor's house, and they have to pay the mortgage. You can't even imagine what? that this is legal. <laughs> yeah, how, how is that legal? How, how can that happen? How can that happen? It took, it took the Wall Street guys a bunch of years to figure out that they could do this. But uh, they've known it now since uh, at least since 1979. There was an earlier case, but uh, we had the uh, uh, the buyout of uh, uh, Nabisco, and that was a you know that was the the basis of the the uh, book and uh, movie Barbarians at the Gate. Anyway, that's how Wall Street found out you could do it. And after that, oh my God, do we have an explosion of this kind of uh, behavior? But uh, what happened is they were using the surprise medical bills to pay off all that debt. That's how they were going to manage. And now that they can't have the surprise medical bills, you'll be happy to hear, or maybe not so happy, but anyway, the private equity-owned company, the, the private equ- it was KKR, owned Envision. Envision owned the doctor's practices, and Envision just uh, declared bankruptcy. And the investment of the KKR and the investment of their partners, the, the, the private equity partners, they lost, uh, you know, they lost billions of dollars on this, three mm-hmm. or four billion dollars. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we, if we can mobilize the outrage, we can stop certain practices and put private equity on notice that, that this is not going to work. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Here again, I mean, that the mobile, if we could just mobilize enough concern about this, because it's not that hard to figure out what has to happen. We need a payment system for this care that has standards. How often should the patient be seen by a clinician? And of course, if it's dementia, they can be seen by a home health aide. They're not sick. And if it's cancer, they've got to be seen by a nurse. So we could have standards. We could have payment that required uh, that a patient in the last week of life, you know, what's, what's the right number of visits to a patient in the last week of life? Uh, we could have standards like that. Uh, we could uh, pay for the services based on the, what they call the acuity, the average uh, level of uh, sickness of your patient mix. So if you have a patient mix that's mostly dementia and only a few cancer, you will get a lower payment than a private, sorry, than a, a hospice agency that has a mix that is higher in cancer patients and lower in dementia. So make the payments match the mix of services. Make the payments match the skill of the workers who are providing those services. Uh, and uh, just some simple acts like that uh, will make it very unprofitable for private equity to be in hospice. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I want to... I'm trying to mobilize outrage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I really appreciate that you have succeeded uh, to some degree already and, and actually got Congress to uh, legislate um, 
some very important things. We all know what happens when you go into the ER or what can happen. Um, let me, we have only like two minutes left. Um, I think that mostly you've talked so far about um, what is legal, <laughs> which is absolutely outrageous. But I imagine there's also fraud, um, yes. if you can talk about that in like a minute and a half or so. Sure. The, the oversight is so lax that it just invites fraud. The inspections hardly ever occur. They're outsourced to private agencies. You can just imagine how that goes on. Uh, and so uh, one big thing, which I've already mentioned, is recruiting people who are not going to die within six months mm -hmm. and having the doctor at the hospice agency say, yes, this person is eligible. So having people who are not eligible. And the second thing is not providing necessary care Uh, and, and still charging Medicare. So those are the two big parts of fraud uh, that have been revealed in, in, in the court cases. Uh, and so uh, that, 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 that requires better inspections. That these, these hospices need to be inspected. The other thing is, if I have a second, when they inspect the hospices, they talk about whether they meet the criteria for being paid by Medicare. And if they are violating something, They do not go on and ask, and how did that affect the patients? So we have a lot of information on what are called deficiencies. 80% of hospices have at least some deficiency. Uh, so we have a lot of information on that, but how the deficiencies affect the patients, we don't really know. Yeah. So that's... That's a, a, another aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, and we do know that we all will die at some point or another, and, <laughs> and it should be, a, a, you know, a great worry for all of us. Eileen Applebaum is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Uh, before that, she was distinguished professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University. She has co-authored two books, and she is a co-author of the newly released Praying on the Dying, Private Equity Gets Rich in Hospice Care, and that's what we've been talking about. Thank you so much, um, Eileen, for your work and for joining us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that, too. Thanks. Bye-bye. And um, thanks to Jade and Summer. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye bye. Media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never period.